Chapter Number Four of Baseball: How to Become a Player. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elise D. Baseball: How to Become a Player by John Montgomery Ward. Chapter Number Four: The Catcher. Next after the pitcher, in regular order, comes the catcher, though the negative pole of the battery his support of the pitcher will largely influence the latter's efficiency and he therefore becomes an important factor in the attacking force were it not for the extreme liability to injury the position of catcher would be the most desirable on the field he has plenty of work of the prettiest kind to do is given many opportunities for the employment of judgment and skill and what is clearer than all to the heart of every true ball player he is always in the thickest of the fight moreover his work unlike that of the pitcher always shows for itself and is therefore always appreciated a pitcher's success depends on many circumstances some of which are beyond his own control so that no matter how faithfully or intelligently he may work he must still suffer the annoyance and mortification of defeat but the catcher has almost complete control of his own play he is dependent upon no one but himself and in spite of everything and everybody the nature of his work remains the same there are some cases in which a steady intelligent catcher is of more worth to a team than even the pitcher because such a man will make pitchers out of almost any kind of material bennett the grandest of everyday catchers has demonstrated this fact in many instances and i have no doubt that much of the success of the st louis pitchers has been due to the steady support and judicious coaching of bouchon there are certain qualifications necessary to produce a good catcher and if a person has any ambition to play the position he should first examine himself to see whether he is the possessor of these here again the size of the candidate seems not to be of vital importance for there are good catchers from the little sawed-off bantam hofford of jersey city to the tall angular mac of washington and ganzel of detroit still other things being equal a tall active man should have an advantage because of his longer reach for widely pitched balls and on account of the confidence a big march to pitch at inspires the pitcher besides a heavier man is better able to stand against the shocks of reckless runners to the home plate more important than size are pluck and stamina especially if one contemplates becoming a professional catcher in every well-regulated team nowadays the pitchers and catchers are paired and the same pair always work together perfect teamwork involves a perfect understanding by each man of all the points of play of the others and it is believed that a battery will do better teamwork where its two ends are always the same but to be able to work regularly with one pitcher through an entire season catching every day when he pitches a catcher will more than once find his powers of endurance strongly taxed and if for real or fancied injuries he is obliged to lay off then no matter how brilliant it was work when he does catch he will lose much of his value to the team certain injuries are inevitable and necessitate a rest but there are others of minor importance to which some men will not give way i do not laud this pure bravado but because it sets an example and infuses a spirit into a team that is worth many games in a long race i have the greatest respect and admiration for the bennets and the bushongs of baseball but there are other features necessary before a person can hope to become a first-class catcher as before said he has many chances offered for the employment of judgment and skill and to make use of the best of these he must be possessed of some brains 
The ideal catcher not only stops the ball and throws it well, but he is a man of quick wit. He loses no time in deciding upon a play. He is never rattled in any emergency. He gives and receives signals, and, in short, plays all the points of his position and accomplishes much that a player of less ready perception would lose entirely. Two of the best catchers in the country are neither of them remarkable backstops nor particularly strong and accurate throwers, and yet both, by their great generalship and cleverness, are winning catchers. I refer to Kelly of Boston and Snyder of Cleveland. Ewing of New York combines with wonderful skill and judgment the ability to stop a ball well and throw it quicker, harder, and truer than anyone else, and I therefore consider him the king of all catchers when he catches. In learning to catch, the first thing, of course, is to acquire a correct style, that is, an approved position of body, hands, and feet, the best manner of catching a ball, the proper place to stand, how to throw quickly, and the best motion for throwing. After this comes the study of the different points of play. There are as many different styles in detail as there are individual catchers, and yet, through all, there run certain resemblances which may be generalized. As to the position of the body, all assume a stooping posture, bending forward from the hips, in order better to get a low as well as a high pitch. Some, like Daly of Indianapolis, crouch almost to the ground, but such a position must be not only more fatiguing, but destroy somewhat the gauging of a high pitch. A catcher should not stand with his feet too widely apart. It is a mistake some players make, but a little reflection will convince a catcher that a man in such an attitude cannot change his position and handle himself as readily as if he stood with the feet nearer together. Besides, on a low-pitched ball striking the ground in front of him, it is necessary to get the feet entirely together to assist the hands in stopping it, and this he cannot do if he is too much spread out. These things may appear to be of minor importance, but it is their observance which often makes the difference between a first-class and an ordinary catcher. A catcher should not stand directly back of the plate, but rather in line with its outside corner, and when he gets or gives his sign for the kind of ball to be pitched, he should not, by any movement out or in, indicate to the batter what is coming. There are some batters who glance down at the plate to see, from the corner of the eye, where the catcher is standing. He will have ample time to move after the pitcher has begun his delivery, and when the batter's attention is wholly occupied with that. If an out-curve is coming, he should be ready to move out, or if an in-curve or fast, straight ball, he should be ready to step in. He should not anchor himself and try to do all of his catching with his hands, but in every instance, if possible, receive the ball squarely in front of him. Then, if it breaks through his hands, it will be stopped by his body. In catching a high ball, the hands should be held in the position shown in the following cut of Bushong, the fingers all pointing upward. Some players catch with the fingers pointing toward the ball, but such men are continually being hurt. A slight foul tip diverts the course of the ball just enough to carry it against the ends of the fingers, and on account of their position, the necessary result is a break or dislocation. But with the hands held as in this cut, there is a give to the fingers, and the chances of injury are much reduced. For a low ball, the hand should be held so that the fingers point downward, and for a waist ball, by crouching slightly, it may be taken in the same manner as a high ball. Some catchers throw more quickly than others because, having seen the runner start, they get into position while the ball is coming. Instead of standing square with the plate, they advance the left foot a half step, and then, 
managing to get the ball a little on the right side, they have only to step the left foot forward the other half-step and let the ball go. To throw without stepping at all is not advisable, because, on account of the long distance, there would not be sufficient speed. To take more than one step occupies too much time, more than is gained by the extra speed obtained, so that the best plan and the one used by the most successful catchers is the one just described. It is not, however, the speed of the throw alone that catches a base runner, but the losing of no time in getting the ball on the way. Some very ordinary throwers are hard men to steal on, while others who give much greater speed to the ball are not so dangerous. A ball may be thrown underhand, round arm, or overhand. Experience has proven to me that a ball may be thrown a short distance, as from home to second, most accurately by a swing of the arm halfway between a round arm and an overhand delivery. My natural style was overhand, but I have cultivated the other until it now comes without difficulty. I was influenced to make the change by noting the styles of other players, particularly of Ewing and O'Rourke. I found that they both got great speed and accuracy, and I also noticed that they seldom complained of lame arm. By being a more continuous swing, it is a more natural motion, less trying on the muscles, and gives greater accuracy on account of the twist such a swing imparts to the ball, much on the same principle as does the twist to a bullet from a rifled gun. I therefore recommend it for trial at least. When practicing with the pitcher, the catcher should be just as careful about his style as he would be in a game, for it is while practicing that his habits are being formed. In returning the ball to the pitcher each time, he should learn to catch it and bring the arm back with one continuous motion of the hands, without making any stops or angles. A word about high foul flies, since many of the catcher's putouts are from these hits. A ball thrown directly up into the air by the hand will descend in a direct line and may be easily judged, but a pitched ball hit directly up is given the tremendous twist by its contact with the bat, and, in descending, this twist carries the ball forward sometimes as much as ten or even twenty feet. Consequently, we see catchers misjudging these hits time after time because they either do not know this or fail to take it into consideration. It is also necessary to know the direction and force of the wind, and this should be noted from time to time during the game by a glance at the flags or in some equally sure way. There is one more point in fielding the catcher's position, upon which a few words will not be amiss, that is, as to touching a runner coming home. There is a difference of opinion as to the best place for the catcher to stand when waiting for the throw to cut off such a runner. The general practice is to stand a couple of feet from the plate toward third base and in front of the line, but this necessitates the catcher's turning halfway round after catching the ball before he can touch the runner, and many an artful dodger scores his run by making a slide in which he takes, at least, the full three feet allowed him out of the line. Many a run is scored when the catcher seemed to have had the ball in waiting. I believe the best place to stand is a couple of feet toward third and just back of the line. The pitcher saves the time of turning around and has the additional advantage of having the play in front of him, where he can better see every movement of the runner. When the game is depending upon that one put-out, the best place of all to stand is a few feet toward third and directly on the line.
From there, the catcher can reach the runner whether he runs in front of or behind him, and if he slides, he will come against the catcher and may therefore not be able to reach the plate or, at least, the catcher may delay him long enough to make the putout. It is an extremely dangerous play for the catcher, however, and one that he will feel justified in attempting only when the game depends upon the putout. Brown saved the New Yorks a game in New Orleans last winter by this play, though Powell, the base runner, came against him with such force as to throw him head over heels ten feet away. The object in standing a few feet towards third is to avoid close plays, for then, if the putout is made at all, there can be no possible chance for the umpire to decide otherwise. Signaling. Under the heading of the pitcher, I have spoken of the necessity of a private code of signals between pitcher and catcher, and I also said it was the general practice now for the catcher to signify the kind of ball to be pitched, though it is my own opinion that the pitcher should do this unless there are special reasons why it should be otherwise. In giving this sign, the catcher, standing with his hands resting on his knees, makes some movement with the right hand, or a finger of that hand, or with the right foot, to indicate an out-ball, and some similar movement with his left hand or foot for an in-ball. Of course, this may generally be plainly seen by everyone on the field except the batter whose back is turned, and this fact has been taken advantage of by some teams. The coacher, standing at first or third, makes some remark with no apparent reference to the batter, but really previously agreed upon to notify him what kind of ball is going to be pitched. This known, the batter has nothing to do but pick out his ball and lay onto it with all his weight. Some of the New York players had great sport the past winter in this way at the expense of the California pitchers. It is therefore advisable that some sign be used that is not easily detected. There are other signals which a catcher must give to basemen to apprise them of his intention to throw. When there are runners on any of the bases, he should not give the sign to the pitcher to pitch until he has glanced quietly around and seen whether any of the runners are leading too far off the bases and, if so, by a prearranged signal notify the baseman that he will throw. This signal should be known also to the pitcher and by every other fielder who may be interested in the play. The pitcher will now send the catcher the ball wide off the plate and at a height where the catcher can handle it easily. The moment he moves to pitch, the baseman starts for his base and the proper fielders get in line to back up the throw, if by accident it should be wild. It is very necessary that the pitcher keep the ball out of the batter's reach, otherwise it may be hit to a part of the field left unguarded by the fielders who have gone to back up the throw and the fielders must understand the signal or they will not be able to get in line to back up. The complete success of all these plays lies, therefore, in everyone knowing and doing his part and in all working together. A mistake by one, as if the pitcher allows the ball to be hit and it goes safely to a field that would have otherwise been guarded, demoralizes the entire team, and several such mistakes destroy the confidence of the men in teamwork. In some cases, the basemen themselves signal to the catcher for a throw, but in order that everyone interested may see the signal and be prepared for the play, it is manifestly better that the catcher alone should give it. A tricky runner on second will sometimes lead well off for the express purpose of having the catcher throw down, whereupon, instead of returning to second, he goes on to third. Whenever a catcher has reason to suspect a runner of this intention, he should make a faint throw to second, 
and if the runner starts for third, the catcher then has him between the bases. The feint must be well made and no time lost afterward in getting the ball either to second or third according to circumstances. The importance of a play such as this rests not only in the single put-out made, but in the respect for the catcher with which it inspires subsequent runners. They will be exceedingly careful in what liberties they attempt to take. The very quick-witted runner, seeing himself caught in this way between the bases, will, of course, try by every means to extricate himself. He may, in turn, make a feint as if to return to second, and when the catcher throws there, he will still go on to third or he may faint to go to third and manage to run to second. To catch such a man it is necessary to make a second feint to throw to the base nearest him, and this will almost invariably force him to go in the opposite direction. Besides, with each feint the catcher has stepped quickly forward, and by the time he has finished the second feint he is almost down to the pitcher's position. The runner is then completely at the catcher's mercy, and only an error of some kind will allow him to escape. There are not more than a half-dozen catchers in the profession who know how to make this play properly, but there are some, as I have learned by sad experience. When there are runners on first and third, with second unoccupied, and the runner first tries to steal second, there are several possible plays. The catcher may throw to second to catch the runner going down, or he may feint to throw there and throw to third to catch that runner leading off or he may actually throw toward second, but short of the base so that the baseman will have a less distance to return the ball home in case the runner on third starts in. Which one of these plays is to be made, the catcher must decide beforehand and notify the baseman by signal, and he will be governed in his decision by the circumstances of the case. If the situation of the game is such that it will make little difference whether the runner on third scores or not, the catcher will, of course, throw to second to make that put out. But if one run is vital, there are other things to be considered. If the runner at third is very slow, or one not likely to attempt to run home, he may still throw to second to catch the man from first. But if the runner at third is one who will attempt to score, the catcher must either throw short to second or else feint and throw to third. Whatever he is going to do must be understood thoroughly by all the fielders interested, and to this end he will give the proper signal. As the second baseman and shortstop may also take on an important part in this play, it will be spoken of later. In conclusion, let me say that in order to accomplish anything by these private signals, the catcher must have them in such thorough working order that no mistake can possibly occur. This may come only after long and patient practice. Some fielders find it almost impossible to work with signs, but they must be kept at it every day until the code becomes perfectly familiar to them. End of chapter number four.